Ragnar came to the farmhouse. He wanted to have sex. I told him if he forced himself on me, in the first three days of his return, I would bear him a monster. I truly want to be your equal, but in order for me to do so, I have to do better than you. I have to make you forget that I'm a cripple. You do not think like other men. You are unpredictable. And that will serve you well. Use your anger intelligently. And I promise you, my son, that one day the whole world will know and fear I have other partners. Saga Briefs, where we tell the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We're taking a quick break from our review of the sagas of the Icelanders to return once again to the family of Ragnar Lothbrok. Ah, uh, we're back again. We've made a habit mm-hmm. of posting these Ragnar-related saga briefs to celebrate the return of History Channel's now very saga-length series, Vikings. Yeah, it really is becoming a saga, isn't it? Yeah, it started out pretty simple. It was just following the life of a Norwegian farmer, his brother, his closest friend, and his wife. We yeah. followed them all across the globe, or at least as far as the sagas are concerned, uh, and they've fought for fame and glory. Uh, I guess now we're just watching the second generation of Ragnar's family make names for themselves, right? I mean, they're running around on the battlefield and having some rather complicated feuds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and our, our longtime listeners will already know this, but for new listeners, we've already covered quite a bit of material related to the Viking show. Way back in episode 7 of Saga Thing, before we invented the Saga Brief, we examined the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons in some detail. Yeah, we hit on several of the related stories and histories in that one as well, but uh, the tale of Ragnar's sons was probably the most important one we, we dragged in there. Mm-hmm, indeed, it was, yeah. And not long after that, we watched someone on the show get blood eagle. Ah, yes. Became the subject of our very first saga brief. <laughs> and since then, we've done several other Vikings-related briefs. Yeah, and we're not done yet. Uh, our third saga brief was on, what, Ragnar's death poem, the Krakomal. That's right. And that included a discussion of skaldic poetry, I believe. I'm sure it did, but... Uh, <laughs> my, it was a while ago very, now. Yeah. My favorite uh, Vikings-themed saga brief was number five, Rollo and the Vikings of Normandy. There's just so much good material there, and, and really, we barely scratched the surface well, speaking of what's of, possible. Uh, speaking of scratching the surface, our, our last Vikings-related episode took a stab at reviewing the many, many sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. Yeah, and that was barely a scratch. Yeah, no, we limited it to the lesser Ragnarsons. Yeah, which may have been a little unfair to our listeners. Well, maybe a little. Our listeners, they probably already know about the greater Ragnarsons from the show, I would think. I'm sure they were all fascinated by the story of Eric Windhat and Agnar Ragnarsson. 
Oh, of course they were, yes. <laughs> and I know we included Seeger Snake in the Eye uh, among the lesser Ragnarsons for some reason there. But that was an odd choice, in my opinion, since Sigurd is he's pretty important for Scandinavian royal genealogies. Yeah, no, uh, if we're talking <laughs> about the importance to genealogies, I mean, King Harold Fairhair is supposed to be a direct descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok through Sigurd Snake in the Eye. Yeah, which is why it didn't make any sense for Vikings to kill him off so early. I mean, why are they killing so many Ragnarsons, John? Um, have you been watching this season? I'm actually not caught up yet because my dad changed the password to his cable streaming and I'm locked out. <laughs> no, for no, no, no. <laughs> no, don't worry. I, I got my mom to give me a new password. Uh, I'm going to catch up soon, but <laughs> the life of uh, a modern American. Uh, but but I, I assume you are implying that we've lost some more Ragnarsons? I, I hope not. I'm not spoiling anything. Oh, no. Please tell me that Eric Windhat's okay. They didn't kill little Windhat with this cute little Windhat. Yeah, a little hat full of wind. Uh, no, I think we know that uh, Eric and Agnar Ragnarsson aren't actually on the show. So you just love saying Agnar Ragnarsson. Well, come on. And I can't blame you. So, uh, now I remember these guys, but I'm having trouble remembering the more obscure Ragnarssons we've covered. Why don't you help me out here? Oh, I'm sure you remember. Don't be too sure about that. <laughs> Well, I'm sure our listeners all recall. Uh, yeah. We covered Ronvald. Who? Ulvi. <coughs> Excuse me? Hastin. Really? Fridleaf. Radbard. Nope. Dunwat. Dunwat? Yeah, I see you did that joke last time. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it was a hit then too. Uh, but seriously, with the exception of Secret Snake in the Eye and uh, maybe Eric Windhat... I don't remember any of those boys. Well, I remember we even covered some of Ragnar's daughters. And, and what exactly did his daughters accomplish? Aside from maybe well, stitching together a flag? Yeah, I mean, according to the saga, not much. Uh, like many mm -hmm. women, their stories are unfortunately lost leaves in the Book of Time. Oh, how poetic. Thank you for sharing that. Now, if I recall, we promised at the start of that episode to come back with a brief on the greater Ragnarsons. Mm -hmm. The fearless Ivar the Boneless. The ruthless Ube, the iron-sided wanderer Bjorn, and the ever-wavering but gifted Hvitserk. Gifted Hvitserk? Uh, <laughs> yes. I assume you're not referring to the facial hair of Hvitserk on the show. No, no. I was talking about his handling of Guthrum on the battlefield and uh -huh. his illustrious career in the, uh, in the source material. Um, and that's enough beard shaming out of you, John. <laughs> not everyone can be as thick and luscious as you are. <laughs> I hope you're, are you talking about my beard? <laughs> sure, maybe. But, uh, but that's not important. What is important for now is the fact that we are back to fulfill our promise for a deeper look into the greater Ragnarsons. Well, I mean, our original promise was to look at the greater Ragnarsons. We're fulfilling part of that promise. That's true. In this episode, we're going to cover everyone's favorite shield-riding, magic cow-slaying, genius of the battlefield, Ivar the Boneless. Which is exactly what I said would happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we can't cover Bjorn, Fitzerk, Uba, and Ivar all in one episode. This one is all Ivar all the time. And I couldn't be happier. Uh, you know, before we get into this, we really ought to address the pronunciation of Ivar's name. Oh, good point. Yeah, because on, uh, on Vikings, they call him Ivar. Right, they do. And, that, and that's not wrong, necessarily. Uh, Ivar is an Anglicization of the name which makes some sense because the show's in English. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we do on this podcast, actually, is we well, emphasize a, a lot of the names that we encounter. We do, uh, but we're calling him Ivar, which is closer to the Old Norse pronunciation of the name, which is probably Ivar or Ifar or Ingvar. Uh, mm-hmm. It's likely that I'm overcorrecting on that last one, but we do know that Ivar's name was sometimes rendered as Ingvar, uh, which is often written as I-N-G or Y-N-G-V-A-R, uh, especially in texts outside of Scandinavia. And those writers are working phonetically, which means they're hearing the name as being pronounced something like Ingvar. Uh, but Ivar is probably close enough to accurate for our purposes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So, like I said, I, I've been looking forward to this since we first mentioned Ivar in the episode on Ragnar and his sons. Well, he kind of steals the show, doesn't he? Well, that's what he does. Ivar's a scene stealer from a very young age. And now we get to tell his whole story. Or at least what's known of it. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the problem right there. The documentary evidence for Ivar is so poor, we're often Mm -hmm. left to compile whatever sources are available and then sift through them for a few grains of truth. Yeah, and even then, we can't be sure if those grains of truth we sift out are are genuine. Is it 100% grade A grains of truth? (laughs) So all of this can be kind of frustrating, but also kind of fun. If you want to get a sense of how difficult teasing out the stories behind these characters can be, well, just go to your local university library and pick up a copy of Alfred P. Smith's Scandinavian Kings in the British Isles. <laughs> There's a whole chapter in there devoted to figuring out just a few lines in Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum. Well, that does sound fascinating. Yeah, well, it is. And don't play coy with me. I know you love it, too. So, <laughs> no, I, I've done a lot of research for this episode, pulling as many sources as I could from the university library, stacking them up on my own shelves, mm-hmm. and getting a lot through interlibrary loan as well. And it was all a lot of fun. And it could, like every time a book arrived via interlibrary loan, it was like Christmas morning. <laughs> and so giddy. And that right there, folks, is what makes people like us just a little different from normal Viking show enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're a little too invested in this stuff. It's probably a little unhealthy. Yeah, and the deeper you dig into the history, the more frustrating the show can get sometimes. Like Fitzer killing Guthrum. I mean, where the hell did that come from? Oh, I know, I know. I do that live tweeting and I was kind of, railing on that a little bit this past week. I think they were just cutting a thread, a loose thread off with uh, Guthrum. They didn't intend to use that storyline anymore because they just have too large of a cast. That might be it, but I don't think that excuses killing the guy who's supposed to grow up and lead a significant part of the Great Heathen mm-hmm. Army against King Alfred the Great. The guy who loses to Alfred at the Battle of Eddington mm-hmm. in 878, remember him? Yeah. The guy who would eventually sign a treaty establishing the very important Dane law. Yep. He's kind of important. Yeah. No, he is. I mean, look, I was pretty sure that he was going to be that Guthrum. I suppose it's possible there could be more than one Guthrum in the Viking world. Well, Uh, possible. And as I was saying this past week, they may be revisiting that storyline with Ube. Really? Yeah, don't quote me on that, but I I think it's possible. Uh, Ube and Torvi, uh, Guthrum's mother, now have this alliance with Alfred and are contemplating a private alliance with him. Uh, anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. I don't even get me started on the Ragnarsons feuding with each other on the show. Yeah, I mean, that part is particularly confusing from a historical perspective, though I guess I understand the dramatic potential it provides for the show writers. Mm-hmm. But let's make it very, very clear at the start of this episode that the Ragnarsons of both history and legend were known for their teamwork. Yep. 
The only occasion I can recall family infighting was when Ube uh, attempted to take the Swedish crown from his brother Bjorn. Right. And even then, Daddy Ragnar showed up and settled things for them. Yeah. Yeah, It's a a story for our next saga brief, I think. Uh, There are other incidents we could talk about, but the general point stands. The Ragnarsons were a team. It's what made them remarkable. Together, they unified the North Sea world under the name Ragnarsson, ruling various kingdoms in Scandinavia and even ruling parts of the British Isles. They're an impressive bunch if you believe the hype. Yeah, and that's just it. There's a lot of hype about the Ragnarsons in some of the sources. Mm-hmm. And this is especially true in the 12th and 13th century texts. By that point, historians had already decided that pretty much any Viking doing damage in the mid-9th century must have been a Ragnarsson. Right, which is why we have to take a lot of the history concerning the Ragnarsons with a hill of salt. There's a lot of inconsistency in the sources about who's related to whom, who did what when, and even, frankly, who's who. Yeah, exactly. And that's definitely the case with Ivar the Boneless. Mm -hmm. Any search for the historical Ivar is a bit like chasing a ghost. A boneless ghost. The the craftiest (laughs) kind. That's kind of how ghosts work. They're boneless. (laughs) Uh, I mean, well, or trying to catch several ghosts at once. I mean, there's there's some controversy in the scholarship over who Ivar was and how many Ivars there might have been. Uh, which is understandable. I mean, Ivar was a very busy boy. Right? According to his legends, he led campaigns throughout Northern Europe from the 830s to the 870s, and often on multiple fronts around the same time. Yeah, that's true. And these various campaigns are chronicled by historians from each of the regions in which he was active, which leads to some complications with the dating of his activities, since the dates don't always line up perfectly across the various sources. It's all a bit overwhelming when you start sifting through this stuff. Yeah, and this debate over one or more Ivars isn't really surprising. We've said before that this is likely what happened with his father, Ragnar Lothbrok, assuming he even existed, and even Rollo to some extent. Sure, and if we assume that there's a small grain of truth to the Ragnar legend, there's at least a, a lot more than a single grain to work with for Ivar. Mm-hmm. He's referenced by name in such reliable contemporary sources as the Annals of Ulster, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Frankish Annals, and several other non-Scandinavian sources. Say no more, the Annals of Ulster and the Frankish Annals. Yes. Most of these do line up, more or less. So if the real Ivar the Boneless ever accomplished as much as he's given credit for, then he's one of the more impressive warrior kings of the medieval world. Right, but I feel like that's a a giant if carved out of granite. (laughs) Uh, If we can believe Saxo Grammaticus, Ivar started fighting for his father when he was only seven years old. Mm-hmm. And according to the stories, he never really quit. As you said, there's a surprising amount of material out there on Ivar. Uh, and it's sometimes hard to believe that it's all one man. Uh, but we're going to do our best to sort it out for you all here in this saga brief. All right, so let's get started. We'll be providing you with an overview of Ivar's life and his remarkable accomplishments. Right, we're going to trace his life from the legendary story of Ivar's birth to his various campaigns across Scandinavia and the British Isles. And, if you're lucky, we'll conclude with his death and legacy. (laughs) Spoilers. Now, along the way, we'll be digging deeper into the most mysterious and controversial part of Yuvar's story. Ooh, controversial. Now Mm -hmm. you've got me hooked. What is this? Well, you have to keep listening and find out. Ooh. But first, let's begin at the beginning. Part 1. Hodie Ivaros Natus Est. All right. So this section should be pretty straightforward, since most of our listeners, I think, at this point, have to be familiar with the story of Ivar's birth. 
Well, you'd think so, but it's worth reviewing, especially since there are a couple of different versions of Ivar's birth worth considering. Uh, of course there are. And they contradict each other. Of course they do. <laughs> and you thought you had something controversial to share. See, now you've got us hooked. Yeah. Well, don't get too excited. This section's <laughs> just about his birth and parentage. Yes. The last thing we'd want is for anyone listening to this to get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> So there are a couple variations in the sources worth noting. Uh, all the legendary sources are pretty much in agreement that Ivar is the son of Ragnar and Auslog. Uh, okay. And that's the story our listeners know and love. But it's not the only one. It's just the most popular. Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, it, it intersects with Old Norse legend. It helps to explain Ivar's famous nickname. Yeah, it, it's actually the latest addition to the Ragnar story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's thought to be an invention specifically designed to account for that nickname. It's also the most fun. Now, Andy just said that the legendary texts are in agreement about Ivar's parentage. He's talking about uh, Ragnar's saga, the Ragnarsona Thotter, uh, or the Tale of the Ragnarsons. Right? Those are the two main sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's implied in the Kraukumal, that, uh, that is Ragnar's death poem, that his sons by Oslog will avenge him on King Ella. So mm-hmm. it's assumed that that means uh, Ivar and Bjorn and all those guys. Right. But uh, So there's at least some consistency in these legendary sources, primarily right. from Iceland. But as I said, these are all later sources, after the Ragnar legend has been fleshed out and all the great Danish Vikings of note have been assigned the title of Ragnar's son. Right, right. We said before that if you get to a certain level of badassery in the ninth century world, you become a Ragnarsson. That's right. And there's something to that. Uh, So according to legend, Ragnar has two children with his first wife, Thora. Yes, and that's Eric Windhat and Agnar Ragnarsson. See, it is fun to say his name. It is. Uh, But after Thora dies unexpectedly, Ragnar meets a humble but lovely maiden called Krauka while raiding. Despite her apparent low birth, Ragnar was impressed with Krauka's beauty and wit. Naturally. And as everyone knows, the outward beauty of a lady confirms the inner nobility. Um, And that's how stories like this just work, you know? Yeah. So Krauka is no humble maiden, of course, despite her clothing and pathetic living conditions. She's really Auslog, the orphan daughter of Sigurd Fafnir's Bane and the famous shield maiden Brunhild. Great. Now somehow, and for no obvious reason, Krauka takes this secret very seriously. Yeah. Uh, she manages she to keep her noble birth secret from Ragnar for a very long time. Yes, yeah, across several pregnancies, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, what's so the point? Ragnar takes Krauka as a second wife. On their wedding night, Ragnar tries to consummate the marriage, but is met with a prophecy from his bride. She explains that she is aware of a curse and there will be complications if she doesn't get her way. Uh, Ben Wagoner provides a rough translation of that prophecy. For three nights, we two, though together in the hall, shall sleep separately ere we sacrifice to holy gods. This delay will do no damage to my child. You're brash to beget one whose bones will be lacking. And surely Ragnar is able to process that information in the moment and quietly abstain for those three nights. No, not at all. Uh, (laughs) He disregards that as peasant nonsense uh, and insists on consummating the marriage on the spot. Well, maybe not on the spot. That might be a bit crude. (laughs) Which uh, turns out to be a, a mistake. The, the next mm-hmm. chapter of the saga explains the inevitable consequences of Ragnar's blatant disregard for the gods. Now time went by and their marriage was good and very loving. Krauka found that she was pregnant and gave birth to a boy child. The boy was sprinkled with water and given the name Ivar. But the boy was boneless, as if there were gristle 
where his bones should be. Right now, as we said, this helps to establish an explanation for Ivar's famous nickname, the Boneless. And nicknames like this can be a little whoa, whoa, complicated. Whoa, hold your horses, John. Yeah? We'll address the nickname in good time. There's still oh, more on. to say about all this. All right. I've got a lot to say about that nickname, so get ready. Oh, is that your controversial bit? Well, so I, I'm eager to discuss <laughs> that as well. But before we do... Let's finish the task at hand. Uh, while this brief episode does explain the origins of the nickname, I think it's interesting that the author of Ragnar Saga doesn't really dwell on Ivar's apparent disability here. Mm-hmm. He casually mentions that Ivar was born boneless and then proceeds as if he were a typical saga protagonist. He says, When he was young, he was grown so large that no one was his equal. He was the handsomest of all men and so wise that it wasn't certain whether there had ever been a man wiser than him. A wise guy, eh? It's it's high praise. Uh, And a clear indicator to the audience that Ivar is going to be an important figure in the saga. Mm -hmm. Now, as the oldest of Ragnar and Auslaug's children, he's the natural leader for the bunch. Uh, According to the saga, his brothers uh, in this this version of the story are Björn, Hvitserk, Ronvald, and Sigurd Snake in the Eye. Which is the standard list of brothers for our hero in these legendary sagas. Right. Uh, but you mentioned there's another story of Ivar's birth that contradicts this one. And I assume that means the uh, Gestadinorum, Saxogrammaticus's text. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as we probably mentioned in the Ragnar episode, Saxogrammaticus provides us with a lot more information about Ragnar and his exploits than any other source. Yeah, he's a regular Julius Caesar in the Gestadinorum. Yes. Uh, and I think that's actually to the point. Saxo was an early 13th century Danish historian. It's not surprising that his history would take some liberties with the facts to make the Danes look even better where he could. True. And it often feels like Saxo is juggling so many sources that he has trouble bringing them together in a consistent and coherent way. Mm-hmm. So his handling of Ragnar's marriages and Ivar's birth are a great example of kind of juggling multiple motifs or multiple yeah. stories. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, Ragnar married Thora first in his saga. Saxo tells us that Ragnar's first wife was Lagertha, mm-hmm. one of Vikings' more popular characters. Yeah, and she's a rather difficult character and not half as mm-hmm. likable in the Gesta de Norm. Yeah. Saxo describes her as a skilled female fighter who bore a man's temper in a girl's body. With locks flowing loose over her shoulders, she would do battle in the forefront of the most valiant warriors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've said before that uh, the Lagatha on the show is actually owes more to the Auslaug of the sagas. Mm. Uh, yeah, this this uh, this Lagatha is not a terribly kind or understanding person either. Uh, Saxo tells us that she disdained Ragnar's overtures, deceived him into thinking she actually liked him, and when he finally shows up to answer her call. He finds that she's set a wild bear and a vicious hound on her porch to protect her from his advances. Yes. Uh, So it's fair to say that she wasn't terribly happy about Ragnar's intention to marry her. Yeah, she's pretty intense. Uh, Mm -hmm. In many ways, she reminds me of Brunhild in Volsunga Saga. Which, again, is probably the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a shame we don't hear anything about her in the Icelandic legends because... I agree. Awesome. I, mean, I think they would have done a lot with her character. The The sagas would probably do her better justice. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Lagatha bears him two daughters and a son named Fridleif, who we talked about in our Lesser Ragnarsson's episode. Uh, but this episode isn't about Lagatha. You want to talk about how Saxo doesn't even mention Krauka, I assume. Right. So Saxo very quickly moves on from Lagatha, the first wife, uh, who Ragnar then divorces for being untrustworthy. Uh, to a second wife, Thora, the Swedish maiden guarded by a serpent. 
Right now, this story is also in Ragnar Saga. Mm-hmm. Which is why we're not going to be covering it here. Hopefully, mm-hmm. everyone remembers uh, how Ragnar saves Thora from a giant serpent and earns the nickname Shaggy Pants. Right. This is the story of his uh, his Cinderella story with his oversized shaft. That's right. Yes. And like any good hero, Ragnar then takes Thora's hand in marriage. And here is what we're told about his relationship with Thora. Through her, he became the sire of two outstanding characters, Radbarth and Dunvat. Nature gave them additional brothers, Sivart, Bjorn, Agner, and Ivar. That is just a jumble of names from other sources. And, especially noteworthy here, there's no mention of a disability. I don't know. Being named Rathbarth is a <laughs> is a tough <laughs> thing to carry with you in life. It is. Uh, but no, no. No uh, physical impairments. Uh, nor is there any indication elsewhere in the Gesta Denorum that Ivar is in any way physically impaired. Also, I'm not sure why he marks out Ratbarth and Dunvat as outstanding here while minimizing the far more active and accomplished Sigurd, Bjorn, and uh, Ivar. Mm-hmm. Especially since he then goes on to highlight the illustrious career of Ivar and Bjorn elsewhere in Book 9 and says very little about Ratbarth and Dunvat. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, sometimes that's just Saxo for you. There's a lot of good history in there, but it can take a careful eye to make sense of the different sources. Yeah, and speaking of different sources. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we were done with Ivar's birth. Is it time for nicknames now? I want to talk about nicknames. I want to talk about the significance of Saxo's choice. Soon, John, soon. Uh, There's one more possibility to consider. This one is even further removed from the legendary sources and a little closer to the actual events. But that doesn't mean we can completely trust them, however, because they're foreign sources. Are you going to start involving the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle here? Uh, no, but the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does identify another brother we haven't talked about. Oh, half done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if it's not the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, then it's, uh, what, the Chronicon Athelwardi? No. Interesting. I like that you used the Latin name of it, though. That was Well, uh, is it an English source? No. Is it an Irish source? Bing. Uh, glad I didn't go Scottish there. Okay. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Irish sources, but I'm going to guess here. Annals of Ulster? I'll give you half a bing on that one. He does well, appear you in the Annals earlier. of Ulster, <laughs> uh, but no mention is made there of his parentage. Mm-hmm. So, of course, John, you're going to kick yourself when you hear this. I'm talking about the fragmentary Annals of Ireland. Oh, of course, the fragmentary Annals. Mm-hmm. I would have said that first. It just seemed too obvious. Yeah, I should have gone with your gut. So what are the fragmentary Annals? <laughs> they're just an early 11th century compilation of Irish chronicles. I think there's oh, okay. three three different fragments kind of pieced together. Uh-huh. So the part we're concerned with is known as the Ulsary uh, Chronicle. Uh-huh. And I only bring this up because the chronicle complicates our current portrait of Ivar's family ties. Since it's a chronicle, there's no elaborate birth story offered for a foreigner come to take land from the Irish. Right, which makes sense. Yeah. So, but the first reference to Ivar is from 849, where it says he arrived from Scandinavia with his brother Olaf to demand tribute and taxes on behalf of his father. Okay, so we have another brother now, Olaf. Yeah. And let me guess, it doesn't mention Ragnar? Bing again! Hey! So we're going to get into Ivar's... <laughs> we're just Groundhog Day in it now. Yes, I am. Uh, we're going to get into Ivar's Irish adventures a little bit later. But for now, I just want to point out that most Irish texts are in general agreement that Ivar is the second son of the king of Norway or the king of the foreign mm-hmm. Vikings or something like that. Right. The Scandinavians. His older brother, Olaf, was his raiding partner throughout England and Ireland. And his younger brother, Oisle, was, well... 
I, I'm going to hold off on the Oysley story for now, but oh. remind me to get back to it. All right. It's intriguing. Uh, I honestly don't know much about this part of our story, which gives me something to look forward to. But you just said they are the sons of a rather ambiguous king of the Norwegians mm-hmm. uh, or king of the Scandinavians. Now, given Ragnar's vast Scandinavian holdings, at least as Saxo Grammaticus claims it, I wouldn't be shocked if they mean Ragnar. I mean, maybe they just don't have his name. Well, that's certainly possible, and I kind of like to think that way too, except that both Olaf and Ivar are later in the same chronicle, given a more complete genealogy. Oh, I see. Uh, no Ragnar? No Ragnar. Uh-huh. So there's an entry for 871-872 of this fragmentary annal, um, and it identifies Ivar as Ivar, son of Gothrith, son of Ragnar, son of Gothrith, Konung, son of Gothrith, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And who exactly is this Gothreth? Well, I just told you he's Gothreth or Guthroth, uh, the son of Ragnar, the, mm-hmm. Ragnar, the son of Gothreth. That's very helpful. I can't get uh, any more clear. <laughs> anything more on him? Well, he's the king of Lochlan, which is the word that they use to translate as mm-hmm. Norway in some of the texts. Uh, but it could also mean Viking Scotland, or it could mean just the king of the Vikings more generally. So Right. Now, that could be Ragnar Lothbrok to me. Well, it certainly matches up with much of what we know about the guy we call Mm -hmm. Ragnar. There are even details in the Irish Chronicles about Olaf and Ivar leaving Ireland at times to help their father deal with rebellions back in Scandinavia. Well, which would definitely match both Ragnar's saga and Saxo's guest in Norm. So what do scholars make of this problem? Is Ivar's father Gudroth or Guthred or whatever? Well, I mean, like Ragnar, this Gudroth uh, or Gothrath is only referred to in conjunction with the activities of his sons. Mm-hmm. But Well, and if you think about, it, you know, the family tree there, I mean, Gothrath, yeah. the son of Ragnar, Ragnar is also a name that is occasionally used instead of Ragnar in other sources for describing exactly. Ragnar Lothbrok. It's so very we could still be looking at a family tree here. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. But, but Gothrath is only mentioned in the fragmentary annals, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. Um, Claire Downham, who wrote the definitive study of Ivar's Irish dynasty, concludes that none of these accounts is credible. And as fascinating as it is to search for Ivar's origins, she warns, perhaps it's wiser to accept that we do not know. Oh, Claire Downham. That's not a fun <laughs> way to go about it. <laughs> where's the where's the fun in that? Uh, the no, that's, that's quite fair. That's quite fair. Uh, and with that very good conclusion, I think we can finally move on to, oh, I don't know, nicknames? Well, not so fast. There is just one more theory, which I know I said last time, but I, I can't ignore this one. I, <sighs> Make it quick. I don't really want you to take it seriously, but I want to include it. Make it quick. All right. Um, this one comes from Rory McTurk's exhaustive Studies in Ragnar Saga Lothbrokar and its major Scandinavian analogs. Oh, sure. Okay. So in the conclusion to a chapter titled Father Lost, Mother Found, McTurk asserts, The brothers Inwer, Ube, Haftan, Siegfriedus, and Bjerno were sons of an unknown father. Uh, an unknown father... Probably named Ragnar, so we got we've had no Ragnar here. Yeah, okay. no Ragnar. That's easy enough to accept. Okay, but he's not done. He goes on. They were sons of an unknown father mm-hmm. and of a mother named Lothbroka, about whom little <laughs> Wait. is. Whoa, 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 whoa. yeah. Uh, what? No Ragnar, but their mother is named Lothbroka. 
That's right, yes. He claims uh-huh. that the legends got blended together, but that there must have been a woman associated with a cult of fertility goddess known by the names Lothkona or Lothbroka. Mm-hmm. She was eventually replaced in the stories by the nameless father, later identified as Regenheri, uh, of the 845 Viking attack on Paris. So mm-hmm. the name Lothbroka became a convenient nickname around which a legendary story was built, similar to what happened with Ivar's nickname. Really? Uh-huh. That's the theory. What do you think? Um, I'm going to stay on very firm ground here and say that I am awaiting further evidence ah. before I accept that theory. It's a very exhaustive study. I highly recommend you check it out. Well, I've, 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 it's been many years since I've looked at McTurk, uh, but I um, do not recall being swayed by this particular line of argument. Okay, so in summation, we've got a few options for Ivar's origins. Uh-huh. First, we have the legendary Icelandic sources telling us that he's the cursed son of Ragnar Lothbrok and Aslog Sigurdstalter. Second, we have Saxo Grammaticus's version, where he's one of many sons born to Ragnar and Thora. Third, the Irish sources tell us he's the son of Gothfrith, king of the Vikings. And in those sources, he's got two brothers, Olaf and Orsley. Mm-hmm. And then we've got McTurk's literary study, which offers the possibility that there may not have been a Ragnar, but rather a woman named Lothbroka, who gave birth to Ivar and his brothers. That's it. Oh, and uh, Claire Downham's rather wise suggestion that there's no way of knowing Ivar's origins. So Yeah, I'm, if I have to put down 20 bucks fast, I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> yes, me too. Now, if you're ready, John, it's time for... Part two, Ivar, the Boneless. So how you feeling, John? This is the nickname section you've waited your whole life for. I mean, that, that's a bit strong. Uh, I've been in training for a while, I admit. Uh, but <laughs> I, I'm excited about this one. We, we can't really talk about Ivar without talking about the question of his physicality. Absolutely. Ivar was first called Beinlaus, or Boneless, in Old Norse texts starting in about the 12th century. Uh, I think it first appears in a fragmentary poem and then gets picked up elsewhere. But there's no explanation in that poem for what Boneless means, right? You're correct. No, it, it just uses the name Ivar the Boneless. Uh, the audience is expected to know the story behind it back then. Well, that's not terribly helpful for us. No. Uh, and as you know, the name Boneless has been interpreted a number of different ways since it first showed up in Old Norse poetry. Uh, the most popular reading of the nickname suggests that Ivar is disabled, as we've been suggesting, impaired physically or in some other way atypical. Yeah, and this is no doubt drawing on the descriptions of Ivar taken from Ragnar Saga, which uh-huh. we've just talked about. Uh, but you're right, he's usually depicted as physically disabled in some way. Uh, the show Vikings, for example, has certainly made a great deal of that. Ivar, as played by Alex Anderson, is semi-paralyzed from the waist down, or at least that seems to be the way he plays the role. Yeah, and even that depends on the age we're talking about. The show has actually pathologized Ivar as atypical in a number of different ways, both mental and physical, over the course of his life. Um, When he was born, for example, he appeared to have no bones in his legs whatsoever, and now in adulthood he seems to have legs that are merely paralytic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... If we look at the textual history of Ivar, we find that's pretty standard. Yeah, and there are a lot of different ideas about Ivar and his body. Yeah, right, which which is one of the reasons why he's an interesting figure from a disability studies standpoint. In the Icelandic tradition, Ivar is a bit of an enigma. 
He's a successful warrior whose body represents as profoundly impaired. When we talk about disability from a modern medical model, that's a complex figure to unpack. Yeah, and that's why his nickname is so important, because how you choose to interpret his nickname dictates how you imagine his character functioning for the rest of the story. Exactly. There aren't a lot of saga figures who've been presented in popular literature and culture as often as Ivar. And the first question a writer, an actor, or an artist has to answer is what exactly the boneless means. Well, it means lacking in bones, John. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. And I Bone think you less, know that. Less uh, For one thing, we don't really know whether that's actually his nickname at all. True. There's, there's that argument that boneless is actually a mistranslation, or rather a translation of a scribal error. Yeah, is this the, uh, the exosus argument? Yes, it is. Do you want to explain this? All right, I like this one. Uh, it has some significant implications that are intriguing. So in many of the Anglo-Saxon sources, Ivar is described as especially cruel. In fact, he's the worst mm. of the Vikings. Not just English chroniclers. Adam of Bremen described him as crudelissimus, or the most cruel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was writing in the second half of the 11th century, by which time Ivar's reputation had been thoroughly established in non-Scandinavian countries. And those sources were pretty clear about Ivar being a monster. In English texts, Ivar appears as a villain in the martyrdom of St. Edmund and the horrors of the great heathen army, including mm-hmm. the blood eagling of King Ella. In those stories, uh, yes. the tendency is to build up his formidability as an enemy. Yeah, now he's pretty uniformly reviled in English sources as well, uh, which isn't shocking. Well, no, I mean, he killed a lot of people and destabilized the whole thing. Yep, <laughs> like, yep. Now, and when he killed people, he tended to do it in excessively violent ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Asser's biography of Alfred the Great, uh, Abu Fleury's life of St. Edmund, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, they all emphasize Ivar's fearsomeness and ignore the possibility of any uh, disability or disfigurement in favor of depravity. Exactly. So the exos theory that we're talking about here posits that one or more writers writing about Ivar and the great heathen army in Latin called Ivar exosus, that is E-X-O-S-U-S. Mm-hmm. which means the terrible or the odious. But at some point, a writer either misread or miswrote the word exosus as exos, an adjective which translates as unboned or boneless. Now, the reason that's a reasonable conjecture is that the spelling was at best, I mean, we could say generally that spelling is a regional art in the European medieval period. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers wrote what they heard, or more accurately, what they wanted a reader to hear in print. Uh, so writing was often phonetic, and spellings of single words could vary in a single manuscript written by the same scribe. Yeah. And then you add to that the problem of a Scandinavian scribe reading a manuscript that uses abbreviations for inflected endings, and you've got Ivar Exosus becoming Ivar Exos. The terrible one becomes the boneless. Yeah, it's a reasonable assumption, but it's just a theory. There's actually no evidence that anyone ever called Ivar Exosus specifically, or Exos for that matter. So what I like about that theory, though, is it would explain why some sources don't mention Ivar's presumed disability at all. He may not have had one, because he was never the boneless in the first place. He was always just terrible. Again, it's a reasonable theory, but it kind of argues Mm -hmm. from silence. Uh, I'd like to see an actual reference to Ivar as Exosus specifically before I buy into this theory. Yeah, I didn't say I buy this argument. Uh, But the explanation there is that Norse writers were writing centuries later than the contemporary English and continental sources, 
and may have been relying on those sources for information about the Ragnarsons. Right. Okay, so that's one theory, and you made me do the heavy lifting. What's next? Why don't you do one? Uh, well, I mean, there's also the idea that Beinlaus may have been an example of Lytotes, which is definitely a not unheard of phenomenon in <laughs> Scandinavian nicknames. Okay. Yeah, I see what you did there. You're very silly, Dr. Sexton. <laughs> I'm pleased with myself. Of course you are. <laughs> right, for those not in the know, Lytotes is a figure of speech that uses understatement, often in the form of double negatives to express a positive idea. Although it's less fun when you start defining things. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, in this case, Beinlaus would be a negative indicating a positive. So mm -hmm. boneless would suggest a man of exceptionally large build or height. I've always seen this as an unlikely chain of reasoning, by the way. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of nonsensical. But uh, <laughs> oh, there is another wow. explanation I like. Uh, but before we get to that one, well, we still have to work out what boneless means beyond the literal translation. Well, we should say that there really isn't any way to know precisely what boneless does mean. True. Anyone, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that nicknames carry meaning, mm -hmm. but that meaning is often coded and always contextual. Yes, uh, contextual both historically and socially. Exactly. So you've been paying attention after all. Well, just here and there. Right, you're just going to fade in and out. Yeah. Uh, so to take, a, to take a nickname like unborn or witch face or unlucky or turtle shell or beardless, right? all nicknames we've seen in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Some of those names might seem mild or even meaningless uh, to a modern audience or without a cultural context. But no contemporary of the saga writers would read a nickname like Unlucky without understanding its bearer to be meaningfully affected by the condition described. Yeah, I mean, that's a bad example, though. The meaning behind anyone nicknamed Unlucky in any context isn't exactly hidden. <laughs> but uh, your other examples work nicely, I think. And we spent quite a bit of time on the beardless nickname in Njal's saga. Absolutely. Yeah, at least three times Njal's inability to grow a beard is attacked by his enemies. They create a, this emasculating nickname of Skeglaus, or beardless, as a way of teaching everyone in the community that uh, Njal is an unmanly figure. Yeah, and that's helped by Njal's preference for fighting with the law rather than with weapons. Mm-hmm. But each time his enemies use that name, the danger and negation power of beardlessness is understood to be serious enough that Njal's sons respond with violence, or at least with the threat of violence. Yeah, and that's important because it suggests that this process of naming a person is understood to have a social dimension. Mm -hmm. Anyone can create a nickname, but the community can ignore or reject the name if it doesn't fit the judgment of public opinion. Right. Which is why, no matter how many times I tried to get people in grad school to call me the almost shockingly good-looking, it never stuck. Well, there's a reason for that, but didn't we call you Forkbeard in grad school? That's not important right now. <laughs> the point is, nicknames carry meaning. And meaning, in this context, is socially determined and ongoing. Okay. We can also say that this process of identifying individuals by difference has the secondary result of articulating, at least by inference, the able body which is also a permeable and ultimately contextual identity. Yeah, but that's an entirely different topic. I don't think we have time to delve into that particular <laughs> rabbit hole, John. Look, if you're going to insist on keeping me on topic, nobody's going to know we're academics. <laughs> but okay. So Ivar isn't the only one of the Ragnarsons with a name that suggests physical difference, right? You remember his brother Sigurd is called Ormialga, or Snake in the Eye. Yeah, and we talked about some of the possible meanings of that name in our saga brief on the Lesser Ragnarsons last winter. Right, but Ivar's name, I think, is more interesting because we want to know what he was like. 
right? how his body looked, how his body worked. And his nickname seems to hint at that. And we're not the first people interested in this. Hell, we're not mm-hmm. the first uh, generation to be interested in this kind of thing. <laughs> Ivar's name, with its implication of bodily difference, was the site of a fair amount of speculation for medieval writers. Right. I think speculation is exactly right. Most medieval writers didn't necessarily have a lot more historical information about Ivar to go on than we do. Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of a complicated problem. And we could just as easily turn it around and say that our so-called historical information about Ivar stands on shaky ground. In fact, I think we should say that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it all relies mostly on those same medieval chroniclers and writers who are uh, yeah. you know, have their own agendas. No doubt. Uh, so with little to go on apart from a nickname and a reputation, writers are forced to reverse the usual process of naming as difference marker and try to deduce the meaning of the name itself. Yeah. You said there were two ways to tackle this question. So is the other one to look at descriptions of him? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's easier said than done. I mean, there are a lot of different characterizations of Ivar. As, as we've already indicated, some sources appear uncertain about whether Ivar did in fact have a disability in the medical sense. Saxo Grammaticus, as we said earlier, describes him uh, as follows. Uh, I've got it. Uh, when Ivar was seven years old, a great battle came about in which he showed the strength of an adult in his child's body. Yeah. Saxo's writing in the late 12th to early 13th century. So if we're only going by written records, that puts him Mm -hmm. well after the Anglo-Saxon writers, alongside writers like Sven Agassen and uh, Snorri Sturluson, but before the actual sagas. Yeah, no, that's the the infamous Snorri Sturluson to you, by the way. Ah, yes. But I like where you're heading with that if. Let's, uh, let's stick with the Gesta Denorum for a second. Saxo doesn't address Ivar's nickname, uh, although he does reference and explain Sigurd's nickname of Snake of the Eye. I suppose it's possible that Saxo wasn't aware of the nickname, but it's also possible that Saxo actively rejects the idea that Ivar's name is relevant or accurate. I think so. Uh, but even if he doesn't want to deal with Ivar's physical differences, other writers, especially later ones, more than take up that slack. Uh, one skaldic poem takes boneless to be a euphemism for an exceptionally flexible and agile warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, other sources and critical interpretations include suggestions of impotence, uh, berserk tendencies, serpent associations, even uh, lycanthropic qualities. So most of those are addressing some sort of impairment, whether mm-hmm. he's impotent, psychologically unstable, or a, a werewolf. I'm Were not sure serpent, about that one. Actually. What? <laughs> Were serpent. Well, a were serpent. Yeah, I, yes. I uh, I'm not sure about that. But we we might call this a sort of nicknaming exercise uh, that's that functions as a kind of medieval mythic medical theory of sorts. Medieval mythic medical theory. Yeah, it's uh, alliterative. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it is that. Ivar's <laughs> maternal grandfather is Sigurd Fafnis Bane. Mm-hmm. The serpent slayer. And yep. remember in the episode on Ragnar Saga, we explained that the Sigurd snake in the eye story was meant to link Sigurd to uh, his grandfather, Sigurd the serpent slayer. Sure. And there's another link there. Remember, uh, Sigurd's mom is Aslog Sigurd's daughter. Mm-hmm. She had her father's ability to understand the language of birds, which he got by eating the heart of a dragon. So I, I think it's fair to say that genetic legacies work a little differently in medieval literature. Fair, yes. Uh there's actually something similar about the inheritance of shape-shifting and berserk rages in Ale Scholar Grimson's saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ale is one of the few saga figures who's actually been the subject of disability studies work. And Ivar has also had a little attention. I, yeah. I mean, he's no Ale, but... Well, I mean, who is? But yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm actually far more intrigued by the possibility that the nickname Boneless has something to do with snakes, which you referred to a second ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the family association with snakes, you know, Ragnar dying in a snake pit, Sigurd snake mm-hmm. in the eye, his grandfather Sigurd killing the serpent Fafnir, uh, it makes sense that Ivar might be swept up in that family mythology as well. I'm sure, but it could also carry a negative connotation uh, with a snake being a figure of evil right, from a Christian perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that would certainly work with his reputation in non-Scandinavian sources. It's an interesting possibility, at least. Uh, of course, most people who look at Ivar are interested in the angle that the show Vikings has taken, that Ivar is physically impaired in some way and overcomes that to become a great warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we should address that in some detail. Definitely. So various diseases and degenerative conditions have been suggested. Uh, in the saga sources, particularly the ones dedicated to Ivar and his family, Ivar's name is generally interpreted as indicating some paralysis of the legs or possibly a hemimilia-like condition uh, in which an infant is born without some uh, or all of the bones of the lower legs. So literally boneless, in other words. Yeah. That seemed to be the way Ivar was presented in the show when he was born in season two of the show. Uh, You said before, his legs were shapeless. They seemed to lack any bones at all. And then the adult Ivar's legs are formed more or less typically, and the actor's portrayal seems more of a paraplegic condition. Yeah, I think that's what's intended, yeah. Uh, And that temptation to to diagnose the character or to try to read a diagnosis from literary evidence, it's hard to resist. Uh, researchers do often do try to make medical sense of Ivar. Yeah. You remember there was that uh, documentary about 15 years ago, which I think we mentioned on the podcast before. Yeah, uh, we It's did. called The Strangest Viking. And mm-hmm. it explores the possibility that, that Beinlaus, uh, boneless, indicates the condition osteogenesis imperfecta or brittle mm-hmm. bone disease. Yeah. Now, I've seen that documentary, John, and it's uh, not entirely convincing. No, I'm afraid not. Uh, but it's important, I think, uh, because it serves as a check on any assumptions we might want to make about someone like Ivar based on our ideas, like sort of our modern ideas of what makes a man a warrior. Uh, and more to the point, what would have qualified or disqualified a man as a warrior in 9th century Europe? I think we import a lot of things when we think about that that can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So taken as a whole, what does the literary record tell us? Well, I mean, to generalize, uh, Ivar is formidable in his stories due to a combination of factors. The Icelandic sagas emphasize his role as ringleader of the Ragnarsson brothers. Right in, in Ragnar's saga, Ivar is carried into battle on a shield by the other brothers, usually while using a heavy bow. Right, with Ivar firing arrows half the size of spears from the high vantage point of his brother's shoulders, uh, he, he basically becomes a kind of uh, one-man siege engine. And that's before Ivar occasionally launches his own magically enhanced body at a foe, like he did against the magical cow, Sibylia. Yeah. You know, I read a, a really interesting article that, that mm-hmm. was suggesting that Sibylia herself was a, a siege engine. Um, and then they use the cow kind of to, to describe oh, it, almost like a you know, kind of Trojan That would make a great deal of sense, thing. actually. You know, the, the, the onager, uh, which is a kind of trebuchet, yeah. uh, is, means mule, the donkey. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so there actually is that precedent for for farm animals being turned into siege engines. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, and you know how much I love Sibylia. Um, and it's been... Uh, uh, may her milk never curdle. <laughs> yes. So Ivar is an effective warrior by playing to his strengths. Brains distance combat, and Mm -hmm. a bit of magic now and then. Yep. Now, at the same time, there is a hint 
of a sort of Fisher King aspect to Ivar really? in the ambiguity of his disability. Right? This uh, the possible connection that some people have made to his reproductive organs and his seeming link to a magical reality that his brothers can't access. I noticed that you managed to sneak those reproductive organs back in there. Well, modesty forbids me to comment. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to leave that right there. Now, mm. Ivar's impotence has figured into his characterization on the show as well. And like the actual sagas, his rivals, especially his brother Sigurd, homed in on that as a way of delegitimizing Ivar as a public figure. Right. Thus, uh, Sigurd getting the axe at the end of season four. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't the only instance of Ivar's impairment having a sexual angle. Uh, Harry Harrison's book, The Hammer and the Cross. Yeah, you've you've which mentioned that we, one before. Yeah, yeah, I think we did talk about it for our Blood Eagle episode. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, in that book, which is a, a late 20th century sci-fi, science, fantasy, sort of historical book, um, there's a fair amount of speculation by others about Ivar's ability to perform sexually. Although the actual characterization is more that he's kind of a homicidal sadist. Right. More a mental or emotional disorder then. Right, yeah. Uh, I don't know whether Vikings has ever resolved the question of whether Ivar's sexual impotence is the result of a physical impairment or a psychological condition. Uh, we should, we should, I mean, we could keep going on this. We should probably get back to the saga evidence here. Well, I mean, in the central text, Ragnar's Saga Lothbokar, uh, uh-huh. we've already explained that Ivar's condition is the result of his father Ragnar's impatience to consummate his marriage to Oslog Sigurd's daughter. Okay, so it, so it brings fate or the working of the gods into the story. Uh-huh. Ivar is then described as having gristle where his legs should be and grows to be large, handsome, and wise, mm-hmm. uh, even though he's sort of uh, uh, limited by this impatience of his father. Yes, and these these sagas are pretty clearly in conversation with English and other Scandinavian sources. Mm-hmm. The Ragnar saga, for example, borrows material from Geoffrey of Monmouth, a Volsunga saga, Celtic myth, the Aeneid, and various European folkloric traditions. Absolutely. Uh, but I think Ivar's shape-shifting textual body, if I can get a little uh, uh, lit critty for a minute, uh, supersedes the source materials informing his story. Right? He is atypical but undetermined, maybe underdetermined even. Hmm. Underdetermined, meaning that like no one explanation is completely convincing. Yeah, no, exactly. Ivar is a collection of ideas. Those ideas center around the able or disabled body. It's less interesting to me trying to resolve his condition or to suggest that any one name or meaning is correct than in contemplating him as a series of ambiguous, maybe even contradictory characteristics. He's fascinating because of his ambiguity and because of the ways in which various writers have struggled to reconcile the name boneless to a physical form that can correspond to a nationalistic, a narrative or a cultural demand. So, I, I mean, I suppose that's why it's so interesting to think about him in these terms. In the few texts that acknowledge his disability, Ivar is kind of a window into the ways that medieval writers and readers understood disability. Yes. And what different kinds of disabled bodies meant from a narrative perspective. Well, yeah. Uh, and narrative demand is only one way to think about it. I mean, there are medical frameworks, moral or religious contexts, social settings, right, all pulling the meaning of Ivar's body in different directions. Mm. Ivar is ultimately a man without a face. He begins with an ambiguous marker of difference, and that's all. Writers had to create a figure to fit it. So in these stories, without a clear indicator across the literary and historical record, it's virtually impossible to know the meaning of Ivar's name. The chief issue about Ivar's condition ends up being less about his actual physical self and more about how his character and his reputation inform writers' presentation of his body. 
Hmm. Excellent. Well said. Almost like a, a, a conclusion to an article. Well, <laughs> I've written about Ivar, so it's... <laughs> uh, all right. Are you ready to untangle this biography now? Let's give it a shot. Part three. Ivar, the early years. Okay, uh, before we get started on this, I need to know something. What? What's that? Well, are we handling this uh, like the Ivar of Scandinavian, English, Irish, and Scottish campaigns are all, you know, one person? Yes, but I, I think that's a fair assumption at this point. Uh, though I, I'll admit, there's plenty. There is plenty of debate on the subject. Oh, plenty of debate. I just wanted to know how uh-huh. we were going to approach this. So, yeah. he is Ivar. He is Legion, for they are many. <laughs> what well, may, maybe? Uh, but that kind of suggests that there's more than one Ivar, and I just specifically said that we're treating him as a single person. Yes, one and many. I know. It's a perfect but, analogy for this discussion. <laughs> Carry on. All right. Who was Ivar's the boneless? Well, according to available sources, the Ivar we're chasing was a historical figure who helped his father and brothers conquer lands throughout Scandinavia. And we're going to skip over the Scandinavian adventures since we, we already covered those in the Ragnar episode and uh, and the lesser Ragnarsons brief. Well, that does mean we'll be missing out on Sibylia, the demonic oh. cow that Ivar heroically dispatched after being launched onto its back. Well, trust me. I want to talk about Sibylia as much as you do. Probably more, more so, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, this episode would never end if we rehashed everything from Ragnar Saga. Well, we didn't really touch on his activities in Saxo Grammaticus. I think we can at least hit those points. Fair enough. All right. So, but let's do it quickly because the Irish and Anglo-Saxon campaigns are going to take some time. Yeah, years, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, well, there isn't Decades. much... On Ivar in Saxo, but it sets up an historical figure who was actively campaigning in Denmark and Sweden in the late 830s through the 840s. Mm-hmm. And we can limit that Scandinavian overview then to just Saxo Grammaticus. Okay, that's a deal. Um, so, all right, so not long after Ivar is born, Ragnar's having trouble with the Jutes and the Scanians, which is a tribe in the southern Swedish peninsula. Mm-hmm. They dismiss Ragnar's claims of authority and begin a massive rebellion against him. Well, this is a problem conquerors often run into. Right? William the Conqueror had similar problems in England. And if we can mm-hmm. believe Saxo's history, most of Ragnar's career and those of his children are spent conquering and then fighting to maintain control of certain territories. That's right. So the Jutes of the Scanians are rebelling, and Ragnar sends ambassadors to Norway, pleading for help in the coming fight. His ex-wife, Lagertha, answers the call with 120 ships. Right. Now, apparently, this, this indicates to us that she still has at least feelings for Ragnar, uh, which mm-hmm. is something the Viking show played with throughout the first several seasons. Uh, Lagertha personally led the Norwegian forces alongside her son by Ragnar and her new husband. Yeah, that's Friedleif, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's tempting to tell this whole story, but mm-hmm. I'll shift over to Ivar and his role in it. So Ragnar is desperate for help wherever he can find it, which is why he conscripts everyone he can find, including old men and young boys. Is that a deliberate quote from Man of War? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so Saxo says Ragnar enlisted support from every age group, piling infirm and sturdy together feeling no embarrassment and introducing boyish and elderly squads among formations of the able-bodied. 
See, that sounds to me like Saxo's judging Ragnar. Oh, he's absolutely judging Ragnar. But it doesn't matter <laughs> because the strategy works. Yeah, it does work. Uh, and this is where Ivar comes into the story. You see, he's only seven years old at this point, mm. but Ragnar isn't about to conscript the children of other men and let his own sons get off because of their privileged <laughs> status. Right, no draft deferments here. No. Uh, and Ivar, despite his youth, Ivar does well. Uh, we're told that he fought remarkably, d- displaying a mature strength in his young body. And mm. Again, Saxo doesn't reference Ivar's nickname and doesn't present him as being in any way impaired. That's right. Uh, again, I, I think the notion of Ivar's impairment is a very late addition to the stories about him. It doesn't really show up until the legendary Icelandic texts of the late 12th and early 13th centuries. So we, I think we just have a lasting impression from those famous stories that make us think of Ivar as impaired. But either way, Ivar starts his military career very early in life and handles himself admirably. Yeah, now he'll be involved in a variety of campaigns. Um, there's even uh, there's an important one against the Hellspontines of the Eastern Baltic. We'll be talking about that one in more detail when we cover Hvitserk in our next Ragnarsson episode, so we can probably skip over it for now. Sure. Yeah, a little later we learn that Ivar is the governor of Jutland. Uh, he He's goes rising into up a- in the world. He sure is, yeah. And his father's giving him a lot of responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So he goes into a self-imposed exile briefly um, to avoid getting involved in a war that we'll talk about um, in our next Ragnarsson episode. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a war involving his half-brother, Ube, who is joined in a rebellion against Ragnar's authority. So once that conflict is resolved, Ivar returns and is praised by his father for his devotion to family. Oh, that's nice. You see, Ivar's not all bad. No, it just, it it pays to be on the right side of a conflict with him. And I think that Vikings has done a pretty good job of playing that out. (laughs) And that deep respect that Ragnar has for Ivar is shown when Ragnar eventually leaves for his massive campaign in Russia. Now, before he departs, Ragnar entrusts Ivar with the reign of the entire kingdom. Which is a pretty big responsibility. Sure. Ragnar has a nice little empire going, and running it can't be easy, but... It's a nice little empire you got there. It's a shame if something happened to it. (laughs) Ivar is up to the task. He's a good leader. Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of how Saxo's Ivar story goes. He's one of Ragnar's most loyal and trusted companions. And at some point, Ivar leaves Scandinavia to pursue fame and fortune in the British Isles. And at this point, we need to shift to the Irish annals for this part of the story. As his father's empire expanded westward, he arrived in Ireland in 849 with his brother, whose name is Olaf, to collect tribute and taxes on behalf of their father. Right. So Olaf Together, is one of the many, many siblings who appear in some texts but not in others. Yes. So together, Ivar and Olaf become a major force in Ireland, establishing a Danish stronghold there through strategic alliances and warfare throughout the 850s. They're the kings of Dublin. That's exactly right, yes. Uh, There had been a strong Norwegian settlement in Dublin right next to the Irish settlement of Bolia Oclia. Sorry to Irish uh, people and Irish speakers uh, for the pronunciation of place and people names uh, that is coming up. Yeah, let's just just, uh, say right now that that apology goes for both of us. Yes, and also to those who don't like our pronunciation of Scandinavian names, uh, once again, sorry. Meh. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over that one. Yeah. So several sources indicate that the Danish forces, likely led by Ivar and Olaf, arrived in Dublin around 851 and then slaughtered the Norwegian forces. The Irish Norwegians tried to then take it back in 852 but failed. 
Dublin now belonged to Ivar and Olaf, and from that base, they are able to launch further campaigns in Ireland, in Scotland, and England. Now, some of those early Norse settlers would ally with Ivar and Olaf's rivals. The political situation in Ireland is, I mean, to say the least, a bit unstable. Uh, Various Irish kingdoms were constantly at war with each other as they vied for power and for control of territories. But that's true of most places in Europe in this era. One of the more important players in the 9th century Irish feuds was Muel Shachanel of the Kingdom of Southern Mm O'Neill. He was the High King of Ireland at the time? That's right. Okay, so that's a formidable opponent. He is, and and since being declared High King, Muel Shachanel's influence and kingdom steadily expanded. Mm Mm-hmm. He wasn't shy about taking lands and kingdoms from his rivals. Oh, not like any other, say, Lothbrocks we know. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm sure the petty kings just love that kind of behavior. Yeah, most kings love it when someone more powerful than them seizes their lands and demands tribute. But uh, Muel Shacknell's chief rival in the area was the overking of the northern Unil, Ayeth Finlith. Now, we should be clear... Uh, this is not the same man. For people who listen to both podcasts, this is not the unfortunate Scottish King Ieth the boys from Rex Factor covered in their Scottish series. Though I, I will confess, I made that mistake when carelessly reading too quickly, <laughs> and then I tweeted about Ieth before I realized that they were different people. I wonder, I wonder if you're going to bring this up. You were a little too eager for a hashtag remember Ieth tweet, weren't you? I, yeah, I was. Oh, well, I was quickly corrected. Well, you're used to that. Sadly, yes. I'm, I'm very excitable sometimes, and I, I just my ideas get carried away. So anyway, Muel Shacknell had already been declared the High King, but Ieth had his eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. You see, both of his grandfathers had been High King, and he wanted a taste of that pie. And the resulting hostilities would prove beneficial to Ivar and Olaf as they attempted to expand their holdings and influence in Ireland. Right. Now, with those two major powers going to battle across the kingdoms, I assume that Ivar and Olaf can form some alliances with the lords of these lesser kingdoms, these petty kingdoms, mm-hmm. getting caught up in, maybe swept away by that conflict. Yeah, and that you know that's usually how these things go. So uh, it resulted in a lot of frustrated Irishmen mm-hmm. who saw a glimmer of hope in the Norwegian and Danish newcomers. Right. Those Irish who did join forces with the Vikings would later be labeled the Sons of Death by the Irish chroniclers. <laughs> I know that's meant to be an insult, I mean, at least, the, you know, from a church perspective, mm-hmm. but sons of death is so metal. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. But uh, the Irish kind of took it seriously. In fact, the Annals of Ulster tell us about one of these sons of death, a certain mm-hmm. Kineth, uh, prince of the Kianic tribe. Uh, he rebelled against Muel Shacknell in 850 with the support of the Vikings. And Kineth warred throughout Moel kingdom with those Vikings, as the annals tell us, plundering O'Neill from the Sinan to the sea, both churches and states. And he deceitfully sacked the island of Loch Gabor, leveling it to the ground. And the oratory of Treot, with 70 people in it, was burned by him. So we can see why Irish Christians maybe wouldn't like this guy. Well, Moel Shacknell caught him the following year. And drowned him in a sack in a dirty stream. <laughs> I like that it has to be a dirty stream. Of course. Yeah. Spring water is too good for Kenneth. Uh, still, that's a, that's a terrible death. It is. But, I mean, yeah. he did burn people alive. I guess that's fair enough. Yeah, that happened in the same year Ivar and Olaf conquered Dublin, by the way. So it, it's fair to uh-huh. assume that Kenneth had been working with Olaf and Ivar. 
And the loss of Kinneth wasn't a major setback for them in the end. Mm-hmm. Despite the High King's swift vengeance for Kinneth, Ivar and Olaf had no trouble forging alliances with other noble families in Ireland, both right. Norwegian and Irish. And by 858, Ivar and Olaf were already working closely with the very powerful King Kervil of Ulstri, Muel Shacknell's own brother-in-law and son-in-law. Yeah, this is, you know, the more we talk about this, the more it sounds like a kind of precursor to the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. You know, where you've got both is. sides running around, building that those uh, alliances with the Scots, with the Norse, anything to sort of get those numbers together that they need to take control of Ireland. That's absolutely it's, right. It's a complicated set of relationships that are being built. That's right. And, and family ties, as you can see, don't have to get in the way of a man's lust for power. So together... This Viking-Irish tag team would challenge Muel Shacknell for control of Central Ireland. Tag team. Now I have to picture them wearing luchador masks. <laughs> Delivering <laughs> open-hand chops and flying lariats to the High King of Ireland. I'm not sure what a, what a flying lariat is, but sure. Yeah. Uh, we some flips off the top rope to celebrate. Exactly, yes. Yeah, I'm sure they actually felt that way after their first assault, because in 859, the combined forces of Ivar, Olaf, and Kervil successfully marched on Muel Shacknell's kingdom in Meath. They wrecked the place. Oh, see now, <laughs> that's the kind of thing the High King doesn't like. No, definitely not. But, you know, he was off wrecking someone else's place. Right, so. fair enough. <laughs> but uh, That was fact, the High he, King. That's right. I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he he doesn't like it so much that he calls a royal assembly to work out a peace treaty between the various kingdoms of Ireland. Uh So he's going to try to use political influence to put an end to this this alliance, this unholy alliance. No, that's exactly right. The assembly is even presided over by the abbots of Armagh and Clonard. Uh, these are heavy hitters at the time. Mm-hmm. And they collectively convinced the king of Munster, who well, Shacknell had just defeated himself at Munster, um, and and also careful of Ulsri to submit the, to the High King. Oh, that's disappointing. The Viking-Irish tag team was doing so well. They were going to challenge for the title. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the point, though. Uh-huh. Well, Shakna was afraid of what they could accomplish, especially if they were to combine forces with King Ayath Finliath of the Northern Unio. Mm-hmm. The High King was staring down certain defeat and appears to have settled everything quite nicely for himself with the Church's help and a friendly reminder of their kinship through marriage. Before it was too late for him. Wait, uh, whose kinship by marriage? Not his kinship to the church. Oh, uh, his kinship by marriage to Kervil. Remember, Kervil is the both the brother-in-law right. and the son-in-law of Muel Sheknel. Right. Just we're throwing a lot of names out all at once just to make sure that we're clear yeah. about the relationships. Uh, so how do uh, Ivar and Olaf feel about all this? Uh, not good, actually. I wouldn't think. Uh, they resent Kervil's sudden heel turn uh, <laughs> or, or face turn, depending on your perspective. Uh-huh. Um, and they become enemies for life. But Ivar and Olaf aren't beat yet. You see, they know that Moel Shacknell is is afraid of Ayath Finliath. And it, that's his longtime rival, remember. So yeah, they, right, right. they head north to work out an alliance with him. And the relationship between the Vikings and Ayath proves to be mutually beneficial, prompting the two sides to seal their allegiance more formally through marriage. Oh, but poor Ivar is boneless, I hear. Uh, and according <laughs> to certain, uh, certain, certain authors, it's going to be an awkward wedding night. Oh, so now you're you're buying into the Ivar is impotent theory? No, no, no. I said certain authors, but for the purposes of this joke, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not Ivar who gets married anyway. Ayath Finliath gives mm. his daughter to Olaf. 
And huh. this turns out to be one of the most important moves Olaf and Ivar ever make in Ireland, since it cemented their place in the political landscape of Ireland in the 9th century and beyond. Now that suggests that this alliance works out for them. Are we going to see a defeat of Moyle Shocknell? Well, I mean, they certainly try. They begin recruiting other Irish noblemen to their cause, including Flan, the brother of Kineth, who had been drowned in that dirty river. Well, Shecknell tried to get the jump on them by invading Ayath's northern kingdom, but that effort ultimately proved fruitless after Ayath attacked his enemy's camp in a midnight ambush. And from that point forward, it appears that Ayath and the Vikings were able to hold Well Shecknell in check. Good for them. So does Ayath uh, ever get to be high king? Well, he does, actually, but not by force. Muel Shacknell dies in 862, and Ayath then claims the title of High King for himself. (laughs) And with the exception of a short expedition to the Boyne Valley in 863, Ivar is pretty much done in Ireland. Oh. So would we say that things end well for Ivar and Olaf in Ireland? Maybe. Uh, But maybe not. Yeah. It's a little bit of a rough patch. You see... As the newly appointed or self-appointed High King of Ireland, Ayas' attitude towards the kings of Dublin suddenly changed. And within a few years, he was waging all-out war against Viking strongholds in an effort to clean up the heathen problem once and for all. (laughs) He even kills his own nephew, the son of Olaf, in battle. Oh, jeez. I guess Ayas taking this new job very seriously... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything about Olaf or Ivar's reaction to, say, the sudden change of heart or the murder of the nephew? <laughs> not directly, but it's probably not a coincidence that Ivar disappears from the annals of Ireland around this time. Ivar uh-huh. uh, isn't mentioned after 864, and Olaf is said to be off on a campaign in Scotland starting in 866, uh, though he does come back to fight with Ayeth, according to one chronicler, and he, he wants vengeance for the death of uh, his right, son. Right, uh, But that's a, that's a different story. What I'm hearing right yeah. now is that this Viking-Irish experiment is failing by the mid-860s. Ivar mm-hmm. and Olaf uh, clearly see the writing on the wall, or at least Ivar does, and they decide to uh, get the heck out of uh, Odaj. <laughs> Odaj, that's right. Yeah, that's a very reasonable O theory. Uh, but don't worry, Ivar <laughs> has many sons that will carry on the fight in his name. Sons! That's right, he has lots of sons. Right. Take that, all of you who subscribe to the boneless meaning impotent theory. Good for exactly. him. Yeah, so if he had been boneless, uh, then Claire Downham wouldn't have been able to write her amazing book, Viking Kings of Britain and Ireland, The Dynasty of Ivar to AD 1014. A whole dynasty nonetheless. What do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a little while ago, you mentioned that Ivar and Olav had another brother. Uh, what was his name? Oh, that's Yeah, so that was Oisle uh, or Eisel or Audgisel. Uh, He joined them in Ireland right around 863, and he was a a useful partner, especially to Olaf, because he went off on the uh, Scottish campaign with him. Uh, But the the annals describe him as the greatest in valor, for he outshone the Irish in casting javelins and in strength with spears. He outshone the Vikings in strength with swords and in shooting arrows. That does sound useful. Mm. Uh, you were hinting earlier that there was a story attached to Isla worth telling. Well, the the fragmentary annals, which described him so eloquently as the awesomest of the three brothers, goes on to tell us that <clears throat> Olaf and Ivar loathed him greatly and Olaf the most. Oh, uh, I think I see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll take a second, but do you want to hear what happened? Well, I mean, I brought him up for a reason. 
<laughs> well, well. So okay. So I'll just read from the annals directly here, and it's important to note that um, this story is really more about um, Olaf and Isil. Ivar is presumably in in England when a lot of this is happening, because uh-huh. um, it happens in 867. When Olaf learned that the party of the brother he hated had arrived. What he did was to send trusted messengers for the strongest and most vigorous horsemen he had, that they might be in the house to meet Isil. Then Isil vigorous came. horsemen already sounds like it's something from a slightly naughty novel. <laughs> I think you're going in the wrong direction there, John. <laughs> then Isil came, the handsomest and bravest man in the world at that time. <laughs> Laying it on very thick here, aren't they? <laughs> Now he came into his brother's house with few attendants, for he did not expect what he found there, which was to be killed. It's a nice spoiler <laughs> alert right in the middle of it. Right. <laughs> Surprise! What he sought there, moreover, was something that he did not expect to get. Killed. First, he asked that liberty of speech be given to him. And that was granted. And this is what he said. Brother, he said, if your wife, the daughter of Ieth, does not love you. Why not give her to me? And whatever you've lost by her, I shall give you. What what kind of a voice have you given this one? He's supposed to be kind of a pompous ass. He Yes. Well done, yes. then. I mean, he's telling his brother <laughs> to give him his wife. I mean, that's fair not enough. a nice thing to say. And that's, that's as fair. the narrative goes on, when Olaf heard that, he was seized with great jealousy and drew his sword and then stuck it in the head of Arsel, his brother, so that it killed him. And that's usually what happens when you stick a sword well, in someone's head. Right. But not always. <laughs> After that, all rose up to fight each other. That is, the followers of King Olaf and the followers of the brother who had been killed there. And then there were trumpets and battle cries on both sides. After that, the camp of the slain brother was attacked and his followers were slaughtered. There were many spoils in the camp. I mean, that's, that's pretty close to being straight out of the sagas. Yeah, I mean, it might be. there. This is one of the longer entries in the Fragmentary Annals, and mm-hmm. it actually includes a brief note right before the stuff that I just read that says that the causes of the conflict between Olaf, Ivar, and Isil are known, but too long to tell. Interesting. It's a pity we've lost so many sources uh, in this. It, well, I mean, generally, but especially here. Uh, yeah. Time, war, and carelessness really take their toll. They Imagine do. all the cool stories we're missing out on here. Yeah, it's a real tragedy. And, you know, Alfred Smith actually mentions the possibility that this story was taken out of a Hiberno-Norse saga Mm. that told the story of Ivar and Olaf in Britain. And he believed that this must be the same source for the story of Ivar carving up King Ella of Northumbria. Right. This sounds like it would be a companion to something like Orkneyinga saga. Yeah, exactly. I would read that text. It would be amazing. Yeah. And speaking of King Ella in Northumbria. Part four. The Adventures of Ivar in Anglo-Saxon England. Now, our beloved Ivar disappears from the Irish records entirely between 864 and 870 or 871. Beloved is a strong word there, but okay. (laughs) No, we don't exactly know where he went, but the Anglo-Saxon sources tell us that he arrived on the shores of East Anglia in 866 with a great army. A great army of heathens, perhaps? Hmm. Uh, quick note on the dating here, because anybody who looks this up is going to see a fair amount of variation. Chronicles are always problematic when it comes to precise dates in the first place, but the Anglo-Saxon chronicle of this period uses the Caesarian calendar, which has the year starting about September 24th. That means the Vikings probably arrived 
in the late fall of 865. That's right. So, so yeah, take these uh, these years that we're going to be giving you with a general plus or minus one as we go. Right. I mean, at least that is probably a fair approach to take with these things. Right. Anyway, the Vikings have been raiding Anglo-Saxon England since at least the early 790s. But up until 866, when this great army arrives, Viking incursions into Anglo-Saxon England, they were traditionally sporadic seasonal uh, raids and skirmishes, right? smaller affairs, mm-hmm. devastating locally. But not nationally. Yeah, and you see that with the uh, the sagas. You know, a lot of these characters say that right. they're going raiding for the summer. Um, so they're going to places like England, uh, kicking some sure. butt, and then coming home. Yep. And the attackers generally go home after taking a share of England's wealth, right? They mm-hmm. don't stick around. In the decades leading up to the 860s, the raids start happening with greater frequency. And those marauding Viking bands were getting larger. Uh, and sometimes those result in pitched battles noteworthy enough to be mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. That's right. If we believe the legends of Ragnar Lothbrok, he would have been involved at this stage of Viking activity in England. Right. But what began in 866 or 865 was decidedly different. This was a massive invading army. Right. They actually started in Kent uh, on the Isle of Thanet. Um, and then they worked their way up to East Anglia. Uh-huh. Um, and they were clearly not there for a few hit-and-run raids. These Vikings had come to stay. This was the great heathen army. I assume there's going to be a thunder sound effect, perhaps some beating drums, something at this point. <laughs> this was the great heathen army. Much better. Yeah. No contemporary chronicle identifies any of the Vikings in that initial fleet. Right? They don't, we don't get names. We get right. basically numbers. Uh, but later sources, like the Chronicle of Athelward, tell us that these were the fleets of the tyrant Ivar. Mm. Now, Athelward is no doubt setting Ivar up as the villain of his history there. Yeah. But I, I'm inclined to agree with Simon Keynes, who says that this massive fleet was a composite army drawing forces from a variety of Viking strongholds across northern Europe. And I don't doubt that Ivar was there as one of the more important generals. Uh-huh. Well, and, you know, with the help of a few good Ragnarsons, mm-hmm. Ivar manages to knock out one Anglo-Saxon kingdom after another. He seizes York in 867, uh, killing King Ella of Northumbria in the process. He destabilizes Mercia in 868 and dispatches King Edmund of East Anglia in what we have to call spectacular fashion yeah. in 869. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a rather impressive resume. Absolutely. I mean, for a Viking, I mean, it's, it's not a uh, not kind of job, a job application that would get you a place at Barnes and Noble. I'd be very <laughs> disturbed if he showed up at one of our job searches. Yeah. Well, I don't know, though. He'd make a great ally for taking control of a an academic program. <laughs> First the English department, and then the university. <laughs> now, uh, we should be careful not to give Ivar sole credit for the Viking successes in England. As you said, he had the help of some of his brothers, and there were other Viking lords in, in a lot of these exploits. Right, so we should slow things down a bit and hit each one of Ivar's major moves in a bit of detail. Yes, so uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle gives us pretty detailed pictures of the Viking army's movements, even though it doesn't name Ivar. Um, And if we assume that Ivar was at the head of the army, as later sources suggest he was, we do get a sense of what he was up to. So as we said, the Vikings arrived in East Anglia in 865, 866. The Chronicle tells us that they took winter quarters there, and then the East Anglians not only made peace with them, 
they provided them with horses. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy how Asser, uh, King Alfred the Great's biographer, tells us that the, the East Anglians basically turned the Viking army into a cavalry. Right. And you can, you can feel the frustration behind that line. Well, they cause a lot of problems. Well, I mean, it's, you know, the Vikings just aren't known as horsemen up until this point when you hand them enough horses to get around on. That's right. And they are very good at it, apparently. And (laughs) it's clearly a terrible move if you assume that the East Anglians don't have some ulterior motive. They don't. They're putting tacks under all the saddles. Yeah. Like most Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of this age, Mm -hmm. the East Anglians simply weren't prepared to fend off the Vikings so suddenly. and, And they had to do what they could to stay alive. Mm-hmm. This is something that uh, Alfred the Great would eventually address with great success when he finally takes the reins in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, now, you wrote your dissertation on Alfred the Great. I did. So how hard is it for you at this point not to just uh, spin into an Alfred the Great episode? It's kind of very hard. <laughs> I have a lot to say about him, and we never really get to talk about Alfred in our podcast. He's not called the Great for nothing, John. He's got an incredible story. Well, I mean, you can say a little more here if you need to, or we could always do a special episode. No, no, no. Uh, it's, as far as this episode's concerned, he only comes up very tangentially in Igor's uh-huh. story, which we're going to see in just a moment. But I'll, I'll behave myself. I'll be good. Oh, that's mighty goody, Andy. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, in 867, Ivar led his forces from East Anglia up north take advantage of some political, some discord in Northumbria. Yes. Uh, Asser explains that the the devil had instigated some discord up there. Right. The devil went up to Northumbria. That's right. Uh, I don't know about that, but there's definitely trouble. Uh, the sources agree that the Northumbrians had overthrown their king, Ospert, and replaced him with a usurper, our old friend, King Ela. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we know how that turns out. Yeah, sadly, the Chronicle doesn't mention anything about Ragnar dying in a snake pit or Ivar coming to England for vengeance or tricking Ella into giving him land for a city. Well, then they missed an opportunity. They sure did. Uh, so all that stuff that we covered in Ragnar's saga and the Tale of Ragnarsons, that's all that's out. Yeah, unfortunately, most of that stuff turns out to be a little unbelievable. A little? <laughs> Most of the Scandinavian sources, including Saxo Grammaticus, do seem to agree, however, that Ivar laid some groundwork for the attack on York through cunning and guile, perhaps even convincing Ella that he wanted peace. Right. Well, Ivar's defining characteristics in most of the sources. It's not just his military prowess, it's his strategic genius. That's right. And again, the show Vikings kind of plays with that, uh, does, a, does a nice job with it. Uh, and once Ivar has established a good base from which to launch the attack, the other Ragnarsons suddenly show up with hundreds of ships full of Vikings ready to avenge their fallen king Ragnar. Wow. What are but, the odds? like I said, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't mention any of that. It just says that the Vikings sacked the city of York and killed both Olspert, the uh, deposed king, and King uh-huh. Alla. And no, there, there's also nothing in there about a blood eagle being carved into Ella's back. Right. Uh, I, I just imagine Osbert saying like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not king anymore. No, no, no. They, they, Osbert <laughs> and Ella. Ella. Osbert and but, Ella uh, actually so, teamed up to, to fight right. against the, the Vikings. Sure. Uh, but now we know for sure that Ella definitely got the blood eagle, right? That, that was carved onto his back. That definitely happened. See, John, I think you might want to go back and listen to our first saga brief. As our listeners might as well. Ooh, that's where we tell the whole story of Alice Blood Eagle. Wink, wink. So 
Ivar and the Vikings are now in a very good situation because, like uh-huh. Dublin, York is going to serve as a safe base of operations for further conquests in England. And after installing a puppet king in York, Ivar turns his attentions towards Mercia. The Vikings, so, so the Vikings established winter quarters in Nottingham, which gave the Mercian king, Burgred, uh, time to gather his forces and seek aid. He called out to Wessex, where King Ethelred ruled for help. That's Ethelred, brother of the future king of Wessex, Alfred the Great. That's the one. And, uh, of course, Ethelred does not get called the Great. No. Uh, so he doesn't really Because he won't be allowed, around here. that much longer. Uh, the Chronicle does note that Alfred played a role in the subsequent siege of Nottingham. Not much of a role, though. You see, they set up a siege... But Nottingham was too well defended and no real battle takes place. Mm. But the Anglo-Saxon sources suggest that the Vikings were a little more cowardly than we might expect. (laughs) Asser, for example, says that the Vikings hid behind the walls of the fortress and refused to fight. And then Henry of Huntington, who wrote his version of the story hundreds of years after this, specifically calls Ivar out as a coward. He writes, Ivar then, seeing that the whole force of England was there gathered, and that his host was the weaker and that he was there shut in, betook himself to smooth words, cunning fox that he was, (laughs) and won peace and troth from the English. And then he went back to York and abode there one year with all cruelty. (laughs) I think it's clearly a sign of bias when you're accusing someone of abiding with cruelty. Yes, yes. He's just just living there with cruelty, occasionally stoking the fire with cruelty. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Making up an occasional pot of gruel with cruelty. (laughs) Uh, So I do think, though, that Huntington's bias might be understandable given Uh his English. But uh, the more traditional and I think more accurate view here is that the Anglo-Saxons couldn't break the defenses of Nottingham and get at Ivar's army. And so they ended up making peace with the Vikings and then going home. So in other words, the Anglo-Saxons at this point have failed to resolve the Viking problem in Mercia. Yeah, poor King Burkred. But at least the uh, situation ended with a truce being called. Burkred's safe for now. Yeah, yeah, for now. Uh, as mm-hmm. I recall, Burkred ends up being forced out of Mercia in the 870s. Yeah. Uh, isn't he the one that ends up in Rome? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's he's, he's buried in the English district of Rome, which uh, they call the Angelkunischolo, the school of the English. Yeah, I'm, I'll say it again. You have a remarkable memory for obscure fact, John. <laughs> well, that's very kind. Uh, but of course, it's limited only to obscure facts. <laughs> well, I'm impressed Ask by me where my talents. wallet is right now. <laughs> anyway, so with a temporary truce, the Vikings returned to York, as uh, the sources tell us, in 868. And then uh, they ride across Mercia once summer comes, and they travel to East Anglia in 869. In November of that year... They defeat the East Anglian forces and kill King Edmund in the process. With all cruelty. With all cruelty. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting story, the, the death of, uh, of King Edmund, the martyrdom of King Edmund, if you will. Do you uh, want to tell that one quickly? I'm sure you know it well. I mean, sure. Uh, I'll cut some corners, though, because we, we want to get this thing done. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't tell us much about this event uh, beyond what we've already talked about. Uh, the Vikings arrived in East Anglia, fought a battle in November... And killed King Edmund. Uh, But by a century later, by the late 10th century, a cult of King Edmund had arisen in England. I mean, every good saint's cult needs that gruesome death story for the object of their veneration. 
Well, I mean, why would you want to venerate someone who just died a normal death? I mean, right. that's so boring. <laughs> well, that's the white saints, right? You have your red saints and your white saints. Uh, <laughs> but King Edmund's martyrdom does not disappoint. No. Uh, it was originally written in Latin by Abbo Fleury, as uh, a French monk from the Benedictine Monastery of Fleury. Uh, he apparently heard the story of King Edmund's death while visiting England in the 980s and then wrote it down. Most first or second year students of Old English will usually find themselves working with Alfred Chavainsham's Old English translation of Abbo's Latin version of the story. I remember those days. Okay, so that is more than enough introduction. Why don't you get to the actual story? Okay. Uh, sorry to bore you. Uh, so at the start <laughs> of the text, Edmund is established as a perfect Christian king. Uh, one day he learns that a terrible Viking named Ivar is stalking the land like a wolf, with all cruelty, presumably, mm-hmm. uh, killing innocent men, women, and children. Yeah, that sounds like our Ivar. That's right. Uh, and he's got a brother called Uba with him. I also know that guy. There you go. Ivar sends a messenger to King Edmund demanding that he submit to Ivar if he hopes to live. Uh, I can pull the message up here. It reads, uh, hang on. So, okay, it reads, Ivar, our king, brave and victorious on land and sea, rules many people and has now come with his army here so that he might have winter quarters with his host. He now commands you to immediately share your hidden hoards of gold and the wealth of your ancestors with him, and you will become his underking if you wish to remain alive, because you do not have the power to defend yourself against him. See, that's that's a frightening letter to receive. Yeah, presumably, at the end of that, they just sort of wrote, Mwahahahaha. <laughs> right. <laughs> And it's especially terrifying if you know about the Vikings' recent accomplishments in England. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, King Ella, King, anyone? <laughs> hey, exactly. Uh, well, of course, that assumes that King Ella's bloody goal actually happened. He was definitely which, killed. Well, right. That's fair. Uh, so King Edmund's advisors at this point quite reasonably suggest that everyone panic. Everyone Very should flee immediately. sensible. Yes. Run away. Yes. Uh, but away. Edmund isn't hearing it. <laughs> he says, It is not my custom to take flight. Rather, I would prefer to perish, if needed for my homeland. And the Almighty God knows that I will never turn from his service, nor from his true love, whether I live or die. See, if I'm in that audience, I'm just rolling my eyes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even bothering to waste time rolling my eyes. I'm busy packing my bags. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but those uh, those are prophetic words. They, they, well, it's a saint's life. Uh Edmund then sends Ivar a reply in which he says that he won't defile his clean hands in Ivar's foul blood. Because I follow Christ, who so set an example for us, and I will gladly be slain by you <laughs> if God so preordains. See, he's just, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it lacks a certain something as a, as a threat before a battle. <laughs> it really does. I will so be killed by you. <laughs> If you're not careful, I will jump on your sword. I will dirty your whole sword. <laughs> he's he's really asking for it. And and tell me, I John, mean, how is this good leadership? What benefit does this crazy scheme have for Edmund's people? I mean, it shows them a Christian way forward, I suppose. Or he could just be calling Ivar's bluff. Uh, does Ivar ever bluff? No, no, not at all. Uh, he lies occasionally, but he doesn't bluff. And Edmund is about to learn that the hard way. Uh, when Ivar finds out what Edmund said, 
he orders his men to capture the defiant king. Uh, Edmund doesn't resist capture, right? He's 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 planning on dying all over Ivar. <laughs> uh, when Ivar came into his hall, Edmund, mindful of the savior, threw away his weapons. The dishonorable ones then bound, shamefully mocked, and beat Edmund with cudgels. Afterwards, they led the faithful king to a tree firmly rooted in the earth, and tied him thereto with bonds. Again, they beat him with whips for a long time. Oh, man. Edmund cried out between the blows with expressions of true faith to Christ the Savior, and the heathens became enraged. They shot him with spears as if for entertainment, till he was completely covered with their missiles, as if it were the bristles of a hedgehog, just as St. Sebastian was. Mm. It is a brutal death. Yeah, and we're really pushing the imitatio Christi here, right? This is yes, really an imitation are. of Christ's own death. Mm-hmm. And yet, he's not dead. Edmund is still calling out to Christ, which makes Ivar even more angry. That's when he orders his men to cut Edmund's head off, which they do with one stroke. Okay, so is he dead now? Well, kind of. Kind of? <laughs> I mean, you know the story. When Edmund's headless body is later brought home for burial, the people are distressed that he cannot be buried whole. He's shorter than we remember. That's right. Uh, so the witness who saw the torture and beheading explained that the Vikings kept the head and then hid it somewhere in the forest before they left. Nasty Vikings. So the people go rushing into the woods, looking everywhere for the head and calling out, Where are you, friend? Where are you? And in the distance, a sound. Here! Here! Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the biggest problem I have with this is that they're all calling out, which clearly presupposes that they expect the head to answer. Yeah, they, yeah, they know that there's going to be an answer. <laughs> right. So they follow the calls of, yeah, yeah, and find the head. It's in perfect condition, apart from being slightly shortchanged in the body department. Mm-hmm. And it's been guarded by a wolf from desecration by wild animals. Oh, that's a The people collect the head, presumably moving very carefully around the wolf, and reunite it with the body. And then he came back to life, right? No. They, they just bury him oh. uh, and built a church over. I suppose, it, you know, if he did come back to life, it wouldn't <laughs> last long since they buried him. That's right. Uh, but they, they did build a church over his grave. Uh, and when they dig huh. him up years later to move the body, they find that his neck has been healed completely. Oh. Maybe he did come back to life under the, in the grave. <laughs> well, there is still a red line around his neck to indicate That's the, right. the spot where he'd been sliced. Yeah, like, like a silk thread of red. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, it's it's a great story, but I have to say, John, you hardly cut any corners. That was most of the whole story. Ah, oh, come on. Once I pull that up and have it in front of me, I'm committed. How can I not share that? Well, it's fine. I, I like it. Um, and, and that does actually bring our discussion of Ivar's adventures in Anglo-Saxon England to a close, sadly. But why? The Vikings are just getting warmed up in England. We've got I, lots more atrocities to, to commit I in know. all cruelty. In all cruelty, but Ivar's got business elsewhere. He's a busy man. He's only active in England between 865 and 870. And at that point, he turns the English campaign over to his brother Ube and Halfdan. And in all cruelty. By 871, there are new Vikings on the scene, including Guthrum, Anvend, and uh, Osketil. So where is Ivar headed? Well, according to the Chronicle of John of Brompton, 
a 13th century chronicle. Ivar left East Anglia to rejoin his brother Hafdan in York for the winter. And on the way yeah. to York, you know, he destroyed the Abbey of the Holy Maidens of Ely. And the nuns mm. that served God therein, did he either cruelly slay or savagely drive forth? In all cruelty. Mm. It's a hell of a finish to his terrorizing of the English. <laughs> it's uh, an of course, that assumes... I mean, that assumes we can believe a 13th century English chronicler who has, as far as we know, no prior evidence for what he's writing about. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, we've put plenty of stock in other 13th century stories, so why not? Why not? And with Guthrum in charge of the second army of Vikings in the south and half done in charge of York and Northumbria, Ivar is officially done with England. Excellent. Part 5. Ivar's Bones. Now, the Chronicle of Ethelward would have us believe that Ivar died in 869, the same year that he turned King Edmund into a pincushion. <laughs> in all cruelty. And, and while he does disappear from English sources after that event, the Annals of Ulster has a relevant entry for the year 870 and then 871. Uh-huh. And 871 tells us that Olaf and Ivar returned to Alclia from Alba with 200 ships bringing with them in captivity to Ireland a prey of Angles, Britons, and Picts. So Ivar is very active for a man who's been dead two years. That's correct. Uh, and now they're coming home. Uh, Olaf has been in Scotland since about 866, yeah? Off and on, yes. Remember, he did return to Ireland for several battles with oh, yeah, Ireland, yeah. but he, he spent a lot of time fighting the Picts alongside the Scots. Working with someone we know? Well, I mean, there are hints that he may have been working with Constantine I, whose story was covered by Rex Factor in great detail. Ah, yes. And uh, Scandinavian sources also suggest that the Olaf we've been talking about is actually a well-known figure from the sagas, a certain <laughs> Olaf the White. I wondered if we'd be tying that in. Uh, mm. This is a great possibility because Olaf the White has uh, a very active story in the British Isles. Uh, he's mentioned in Lanama book, in Erbiga saga, in Laxdala saga. Uh, you said earlier that Olaf, uh, king of Dublin, married the daughter of King Aeth. That's right. Olaf the White was married to Al the Deep-Minded, and their son, Thorsten the Red, would go on to take half of Scotland for himself. Oh, for a brief period, yes. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm hearing that uh, maybe maybe you're wishing that Laxdala saga could beat Ale saga in the, uh, the election for our next big saga. Ah, I mean, it's tempting, but Ale Saga is so much fun. I'll be happy either way. So I, I suspect that there's something to the claim that Ivar and Olaf aren't brothers at all. Uh-huh. Uh, more likely, in my opinion, they are kinsmen, not brothers. Right. Well, you do see elements of this family are also at var- in various sagas said to descend from various Ragnarsons. Right. Uh, so that makes a great deal of sense. Right? It would make sense that the Irish chroniclers wouldn't necessarily understand the inner workings of those relationships. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is probably part of how Ragnar ended up with so many sons, by the way. Uh, One theory, which we've already covered, is that Ragnarsson is a kind of informal title that Viking skippers above, once you get above a certain level of reputation, you get credited with being Ragnarsson. But it's also possible that different Viking crews worked really well together, and then their skippers were labeled brothers, and then Ragnarsons as the legend evolved. That's right, yeah. And that's all on the... the, uh Big chroniclers that are writing in the places that were right. attacked by these men. So right. again, they, they probably don't know what's going on. Well, and of course, Ragnar um, is such a big name that you know that he begins to accrue all these legends to himself, and his sons then begin to accrue to him as well. 
Yeah, and quite possibly you just call yourself that to scare the people right. you're attacking. So, yeah, I think that's likely the kind of thing that happened. That these two uh, Olaf and Ivar are kinsmen, maybe not right. brothers. And as far as Ivar's Scottish campaign goes. There isn't much to say about it, really. He seems to have left England shortly after killing King Edmund and then joined Olaf in Scotland, maybe doing a brief layover in Dublin, but probably not. Um, but by 870, they're laying siege to Dumbarton Rock as a stronghold in the kingdom of Strathclyde. And after about four months of siege warfare, the defenders of Dumbarton finally surrender to Olaf and Ivar. And the annals of Ulster record this event, noting that the two Viking kings, Olaf and Ivar, then plundered and destroyed the Dumbarton. And with their mission accomplished, they returned to Dublin, as the annals tell us, in 871. With ships full of booty and slaves, uh, Ivar's winning streak is fairly impressive. I mean, this guy just doesn't lose. Well, that's why he's such an important figure in 9th century British and Irish history. He makes a significant impact wherever he goes, and a bloody trail follows. Uh And this victory at Dumbarton is just a feather in his cap. Claire Downham sees the successful Dumberton siege as further evidence of Olaf and Ivar's dominance over the Clyde estuary. Right now, uh, how much more do the Irish sources tell us about his remaining years? Does he go on more campaigns or is he going to settle down and enjoy his golden years in all cruelty? Yes, I don't know. And maybe? Aha. So I'm going to interpret that for people. The sources do mention him, but there's nothing about military exploits and he might settle down a bit. I'm not going to vouch for him settling down at all. I have no idea. But we do know that Olaf returned to Norway after the success of his Scottish campaign. Uh So this leaves Ivar as the sole king of Dublin. Not for long, however, because he dies two years later in 873. And the annals of Ulster here provide us with some rather useful insight at that point, reporting that Ivar, king of the Norsemen of all Ireland and Britain, died. Uh, so that that line might seem insignificant to most, but it's actually pretty revealing if we want to return to the question about how many Evars there are. Ah, see, I'm, I'm glad you caught that. See, Alfred Smith makes a very big deal of that line in his uh, Scandinavian Kings in the British Isles book. Let's see if uh, you're on the same page as Mr. Smith or Dr. Smith. <laughs> uh, well, if I heard you correctly, the Annals of Ulster just gave Evar the title king of the Norsemen of all Ireland and Britain. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, so if we disregard the word Norsemen, replace it with, say, Dane or Scandinavian, even better, mm-hmm. that it includes Viking. the Danes, the Swedes, the Norwegians, the whole group. Yeah, that's appropriate, and that's usually what the Chronicle means when it says Norsemen. Right. But yes, go on. Okay, so the Irish Chronicle, which gives us our Ivar, the brother of Olav who conquered Dublin, and who spent 10 years or more establishing a Viking kingdom in Ireland, uh, that same chronicle reports that Ivar was also king of the Vikings in Britain. Mm-hmm. It would seem to suggest that this Irish Ivar is the same one who went to England in 865 and conquered Northumbria and East Anglia. That's correct. Good detective work there, Johnny. And that's kind of what uh, Smith comes up with as well. Mm-hmm. And since the Annals of Ulster also tell us that Ivar helped lead the siege at Dumbarton, we've got one Ivar who came to the British Isles from Denmark sometime around 850, spent 20 years campaigning in Ireland, England, and Scotland. I think it's, I think it's a reason. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I think it's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, the only complication left for me is the question of who is related to whom and not how many Ivars there are. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm intrigued by the argument that his brother Olaf is a kinsman, a more distant kinsman. I yeah. don't know if I buy that he's Olaf the White, uh, but I can see how that might work. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, but that that is the life of Ivar the Boneless. I think we we've covered everything. Wait, wait you've skipped something fairly important. Uh, we haven't what? discussed how he died. Do well, we get to hear he how died? he died? No, unfortunately, <laughs> we only get to hear that one line about his death. That he died. Uh-huh. Uh, but I still think that's a great epitaph to a, a rather remarkable life in all cruelty. <laughs> the annals of Ulster have no reason to show him any respect given what he did in Ireland. Uh-huh. And yet he gets this one last entry in the annals that acknowledges his authority as king, even if it's just the king of the Vikings. After his death, Ivar's sons share rule of his kingdom and his descendants, known as the Uivar uh, in Irish history, continue to have an impact on the history of the British Isles through the 9th and 10th centuries, right up until, as you predicted, the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, right. when Viking influence in Ireland kind of comes to an end. Right. Now, that's that probably is a good place to conclude our episode on Ivar the Boneless, King of the Vikings in Ireland and Britain. Ah, see, that was a lot of fun. Now, if you enjoyed what you heard here or in any of our other episodes on the Ragnarsson clan and the Icelandic sagas, Please take a moment to write a review for us on iTunes. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth and Twitter sharing is extremely helpful to podcasts like ours. Absolutely. And if you've got any questions or comments for us, then you can get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at SagaThingPod. That's probably where we're most active. Uh, Mm -hmm. Andy runs that account and checks it regularly. But a lot of people listening to this episode will be familiar with our live tweeting of Vikings for the past several seasons. And that's all you, John. (laughs) It is. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but I try to accomplish it in all cruelty. (laughs) Well, I think it's a wonderful thing and you do a great job. Um, So we're also on Facebook as Saga Thing Podcast. I do very much enjoy interacting with fans in a slightly longer form on Facebook quite a lot. So uh, don't be shy. Get in touch. Send us a message. But do be patient. Oh, yes, yes. I I tend to take a little longer to reply there, but I I do get to it. Um, And lastly, if you prefer the old-fashioned methods of communication, then you can reach us via email as sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or I mean, you can come visit us during office hours and ask your questions in person. In my office hours, no, are from no, 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 no. What? What? That might be a little bit too close. Let's uh, <laughs> let's stick to electronic communication until we get to know each other better, shall we? Well, I'm sure our listeners are all lovely people. I have no doubt about that. Well, that does it for us and our special episode on Ivar the Boneless. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.
decide just to come around More, give me more, give me I would.